0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host Adam Waden, and today is my pleasure to uh, welcome back to the show. Actually, one of the very first guests I ever had on years and years ago, Ryan Singer. How's it going, man? Hey Adam, nice to be back. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to to come back on the show. So, what I was hoping to talk to you about today is um, a few months back, I guess you you published Shape Up, which is a book about basically how you deliver. Uh, quality software at Basecamp, sort of like the real nitty gritty workflow for actually making sure that um you get stuff out the door when a lot of other teams at other companies are struggling with that. Yep. So I think maybe the best place to start would be um, asking you, what did you sort of notice, I guess, out in the world that made you realize you had something to share on this topic? The first thing that happened was we
1: reached a point where We had a few newer hires at Basecamp and we had also had some ups and downs with some projects over the last maybe two years that made us reflect back on, wait a minute, how do we do what we do when we're doing it right? Because a lot of the practices that we use, they are things that developed sort of organically within the core group of us who've been around for a really long time. you Mm -hmm. know, And then as we had a few more people on board and as we were trying to sort of explain what we were doing and how we work, we started to feel like, like it would be nice if we could sort of spell it out more clearly instead of just like, Hey, like watch how I do it and hopefully absorb it, you know? Yeah. Um, and a big piece of that was, uh, when we put Hill charts into base camp, uh, maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago now it's been something like that. I'm not sure Year year, two, two years, something like that. Um, those suddenly gave us um, kind of some handles on the problem. they They gave us a way to start talking about things like scopes and knowns and unknowns. And a lot of things just sort of to came together where we realized that all of a sudden we were finding it easier to talk about what we felt were the important things internally. And uh, Jason pulled me into his office and said, "Hey, you know, I think it's time for you to to share this." outside the company you know so yeah it was kind of like it had gotten baked enough internally that that we could talk about it and then the opportunity arose like okay let's let's package this up so other people can take advantage of it and of course we've been hearing so often from people around us that they're frustrated with the way that we work with the way that, with the way that they work and i think there's been a certain i don't know how you just say it but like the adoption curve of agile and and scrum and stuff like that has sort of reached a point you know where it's like the thing to do that people don't question it and the more the more pervasive it's gotten kind of the more commonly you hear about the problems with it too i think
0: sure yeah so the agile comparison i think is kind of interesting i've seen you mention that before because i feel like if you read a lot of the early agile sort of content like the agile manifesto and you sort of read what those people were sort of talking about. It feels like what is like capital A modern agile these days is like completely like <laughs> antithetical to like what they were trying to yeah. do. And I so mean, we,
1: we I mean, those of us who can make that distinction are a small club.
0: Sure. You know, yeah. who,
1: who were around um and who, who remember the early spirit of the thing before it evolved into codified practices that then spread much, much, much more widely, you know, beyond that small circle that it originated in. But the other thing is that I think a lot of us have a certain, um, we know what early agile was about and what it felt like and how it was more about principles and values than it was about two week time boxes and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. But at the same time, if we actually take a critical look and we, and we review it, what we can see is that, even, even this sort of original Agile, however we want to, to frame it or, or, or put it on a pedestal, it came out of engineering culture, and it was for engineers by engineers. It was totally a programmer's thing. And Agile never gave a clear answer to how do you bring programming and design and strategy together. Actually, the whole thing about Agile was there's somebody else somewhere else who's giving you requirements you know, like a client or something. And it was all about like, your customer doesn't know what they want. So instead of trying to anticipate what they want, you should just be able to change faster, right? And what we're doing with ShapeUp and what we've been doing at Basecamp since day one was actually, we don't want to just be able to change faster because we don't know what the requirements are going to be. We want to actually be clearer about what we're biting off, we want to have a clearer sense of what we're actually doing. And then, of course, we were informed by a lot of the the early Agile stuff, like let's make smaller time commitments. Let's make sure that the way that we build things makes it easy for us to change when we have a different idea of what we want to do in the future. But that's very different than trying to constantly change course because different requirements are getting thrown at you from the outside.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So I think like, from what I've learned from following what you guys talk about at Basecamp. if i had to sort of like narrow it down to sort of one idea that i think is the core sort of philosophy or the core sort of piece um about how you actually get stuff out successfully is that the most important thing to you guys is fixed time constraints but flexible scope would you agree that that is sort of the idea that a lot of this other stuff sort of stems from
1: uh, it's very, very central, for sure. Fixed time variable scope is essential. And we've always been more interested in managing scope than managing time. Um, if you look at what most project managers and product managers are doing, they're actually time accountants. You know, They're just trying to fit everything together because everybody's been saying yes to everything. And it's all a question of how do you whip the team to get them to get it all done and it's an impossible amount of work in too little time. So you're always playing calendar Tetris to get everything done. We've never liked that approach. And we've always thought we would rather put some boundaries on the scope and, and say that the scope is something that we are going to narrow down so that we can comfortably get it done inside of the time box instead of trying to squeeze things in, you know, to the time that we have for sure. That, that's a big piece of it. But the other piece that is equally important is our focus on integration between different roles, all the way back to the first cut of Basecamp and when we first wrote Getting Real. Getting Real was all about integrating design, development, and strategy. It was all about, we've got an idea for something we think is valuable. Let's get some design together. Let's get some code together. And let's ship just that thing. You know, And so uh, if, if we only talked about fixed-time variable scope, we're already much better off than without it. But the other huge piece of it is how do we put designers and programmers together so that inside of that fixed time, inside of that time wall, you know, when they are trying to figure out what the variable scope is, we want design and development to be making trade-offs together as a team. So we want, it's not just the time wall, it's also that that time wall is motivating collaboration that isn't happening otherwise
0: okay yeah makes sense so okay i think maybe what we should do is sort of start with um some of the ideas in the book sort of from maybe from the beginning and talk about sort of this this whole process i've read the book and got a lot out of it and i think it would be good to get into a lot of sort of nitty-gritty questions around it too but i think it's equally as valuable to sort of try and get the ideas on the table for maybe the people uh who don't obsessively follow uh, Basecamp's work as closely as i do (laughs) um so where do you usually start when you're trying to just explain to people how you work at Basecamp in terms of taking an idea and eventually turning that into something that people are actually working on and then finally gets out to customers?
1: Yeah, so um, we can basically look at it as a three-part process. There's the shaping of the work, which is figuring out what the work is before we actually make a commitment. There's betting, which is how we actually schedule the work and and put it to a team. And then there's, there's how, do we, how does the team actually go about building it? If we start with shaping, one of the biggest problems that I'm seeing around all the time, and honestly, it's the thing that we still make whenever we have a project that goes south and we look back at what went wrong, 90% of the time it was because we didn't shape it enough. So what, what do I mean by shaping? Shaping is where we don't give a, pro, a team an open-ended problem to solve. We don't give them, you know, hey, go build a calendar or go build this new notification feature and then and then ask the team to do discovery inside of their time box and figure out what the solution is. The reason is not, nobody has clear expectations if we're giving the team a, a problem that's too open-ended, right? And of course, we don't want to do the opposite either. If we try to, to, to go old-fashioned upfront design and spec out every little detail before we give it to a team, it's going to blow up in everybody's face because none of us can predict all of the interdependencies and all of the ways that the current system works. You know, It's never going to work out the way we think if we try to overplan it. But what we do need is we have to have some sense of what is what are the sort of tent poles of the solution what's the main idea? What's our, do we have a narrow understanding of the problem? Do, can we act, do we actually have a concept of how this thing is going to hang together and how it's going to work? Or are we just hoping that there's a solution and giving it to the team? So in the book, I use the example of a calendar. A calendar does a ton of things. If you just say the word calendar, right? It does scheduling. It does like notifying of asking people to add the event to their calendar. There's drag and drop between month view, week view, day view. I mean, there's integrations with other calendars. There's all kinds of stuff, right? If we have unlimited time, then we can have an open-ended definition of calendar. But if we're working inside a fixed time variable scope, first of all, we have to fix our time and say, how much time do we actually want to spend on this? So we call that our appetite instead of the estimate, right? How much time do we want to spend? And in our case, with the calendar, it was six weeks. We said, we don't want to build a full-on calendar. We don't, and we had strategic reasons for that. So then the question becomes, if we can only build a tenth of a calendar, what's the right tenth, you know? Should we build the very best drag and drop interface inside of a, for for meetings down to the 15-minute interval within a day? Or should it be you know on the other extreme, right, of just seeing free spaces on a month grid or something like that? Or should we go the doodle route where it's like really, really good at helping you find overlap in your schedule and it's not even presenting other events that are going on, right? So there's this huge open field. And when we say calendar, we're all fi- picturing something, but nobody really knows what it means. And then if you give that to a team under a time box, you're not setting them up for success. And you're also not setting a clear direction for what you expect to get out of it. So the shaping work is where we do some before we make the bet, before we give the project to the team, and before we make the time commitment, we're actually doing design work at a very rough level, at the right level of abstraction to say we actually know what we want, and we're answering the hardest technical questions to say, and we are actually confident that this is feasible, and we know sort of the the, the main uh, you know um, load bearing points of the structure of how this thing is going to how this thing is going to hang together and how it's going to work and we're el- eliminating the biggest unknowns and the biggest risks so that we don't give a, a team a project that has big holes in it you know because we can't expect them to actually finish it and ship it if if there's big unknowns from the beginning and what the thing even is right so we do this shaping work when the work is shaped what we get out of that is a potential bet We have a project that's not open-ended, that has a clear concept, that has sort of guardrails on it. And now we can say, if we were to give this to a team, they would know, they would be able to make the trade-offs, they would know what to do and what not to do, and they wouldn't get stuck in it. But now we haven't given them, there's no high-fidelity mock-ups, there's no, you know, high-resolution images or anything like that. We draw everything with fat markers. We do breadboards and these really rough sketches. So there's lots of latitude still for the team to make tons of decisions on all of the, the micro level of what the thing is. But the macro level is figured out. So then the question becomes sort of, how does this turn into a project? So now if it's shaped, it's sort of qualified as a potential bet. We're working in six-week cycles. The number six isn't a sacred number. The point is that the number six, it's long enough for us to actually get something done. And we're not just going to keep chewing away at the corner of something without seeing where the other side of it is, you know. And so that's really where that where that number comes from. And it's also short enough that that, that time wall, you know, of the fixed time variable scope, you can feel that pushing back at you from day one. It's never so far away that it's too abstract to feel it, you know. But you can yeah, feel it pushing sure. back so that the team already in the first week is going to be thinking, okay, what do I need to tackle first so that we can put ourselves in the best position to actually get this done? But I'm getting ahead of myself. So the bet is is six weeks and we'll either bet uh, a single project into that for a team. A team is like one designer and two programmers or sometimes one designer and one programmer. And if the if the project is shaped enough, then we can say okay this this doesn't have any holes in it this is safe to give to a team we'll give it to the team for the 6 weeks and then we don't interrupt them at all during that 6 weeks so that all they have to do is that one thing and this this means that we're we're honoring the bet that we're making you know and and the language of the bet acknowledges the fact that there's risk and there's uncertainty here sure right
0: yeah it's like you've put your chips on the roulette table and the wheel is spinning and they kind of wave their hand over the table and it's like all right well i can watch where this ball is going and but just because i see it's about to land in the wrong spot doesn't mean i can take my chips off the exactly, table
1: exactly exactly but yeah. then the other piece of it is that when you make a bet you bet a fixed amount up front and you're never going to lose more than what you bet right and mm-hmm. this is contrary to what happens in most software projects you say, let's spend six weeks on it. Six turns into 10, turns into 14, turns into 18. And before you know it, the project has been dragging on forever. That doesn't, in the context of betting, you should never lose more than you put on the table. So in order to enforce that, we have what we call the circuit breaker. The circuit breaker pops at the end of the six weeks. If the project isn't done, by default, it doesn't get any more time. No extensions by default. And the only way something can get an extension is is if it comes back to the betting table and we review it against everything else that we might want to do next. And honestly, like that doesn't happen very often, that something gets a serious extension. And we we can get into the details of that. But what this means is that the team actually has to make trade-offs and they actually need to collaborate together to figure out what is the right scope and what is the right sequence of tackling problems. So that this thing actually gets done at the end of the six weeks, because there's a consequence. If you don't actually get it done in that six weeks, you're not going to get more time. You're not going to get a second chance, right? So this this puts skin in the game in all the right ways for the, for the team and for everybody involved. And then the last piece, so that's the betting piece. We've done shaping. We've done betting. The last piece is how the team actually builds it. And
0: so... I think before we like get too sure. far into all this stuff because I I think like I still have questions about where we started <laughs> I think it would probably be good to to get into some of that before we go um it's funny I gave a, i gave a far. workshop
1: on this in Chicago a few weeks yeah. ago and I, I'm always trying to give like the whole package, you know. And they were like, you know, the the room was full of raised hands after ten minutes of just trying to get into an intro. Yeah. So this <laughs> always happens. Yeah
0: it's hard to know sometimes what the best way to do it. Is it should we just like kind of outline the whole yeah, thing know, right? and then dive into the different sections? But um uh, I think naturally there's gonna be questions that come up. So I think probably it's a good idea to just let's do that tackle yeah. them as they as they appear. So um, I think what I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about is in the shaping process uh, you give this you give this example in the book of like um, the dot grid calendar right and you t- you gave an example just now about a calendar um, and you talked about how like okay well, there's a calendar we want to build a calendar but we have to figure out like what about a calendar is actually important like why do we want to build a calendar like what problem are we actually trying to solve with calendar i guess i'm curious um at base camp like how does the idea even come up of like we need to build a calendar um if it's not already clear like what problem you're trying to solve um with the calendar you know what i mean like why why is yeah. there even a risk that you ha- that you might build something that's um, completely wrong by just telling the team oh we need to build a calendar like why would anyone even come up with that idea if it wasn't born out of some like real specific thing you know
1: great question here we should distinguish between two very different types of risk there's risk from the demand side so we talk about demand versus supply side the demand side is what do people want and what's the right fit the supply side is what are we going to make and how do we make it successfully? If you, the, the, the risk from the demand side is that we're going to misunderstand the problem. We're going to build something that they don't want or even worse, we're going to build something that screws up what's already working, right? The risk from the supply side is that we're not going to successfully build what we even intended to build or that what we thought we wanted is going to take way longer than what we expected. So the thing is that people are having so much trouble on the supply side and, 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 and that it doesn't even matter if you have the best insight into what the customer wants and what is the most strategically valuable thing to do, all of that. You could have the best strategic clarity in the world about what to do. If every time you try to turn that into a real project it ends up taking four times longer than you thought or you end up getting interrupted with stupid meetings all the time to try and figure out what's the whether to turn left or to turn right you know all of the these supply side problems are creating massive bottlenecks and they're wasting a lot of our time so so what i what i'm trying to do here and what what we're really focused on is how do we solve the problems on the supply side so that we can even reliably build the things that we decide we want to build. And shaping, there's a shaping is mostly a supply side thing. Given something that we think we want to do, how do we get clear about what it is that we're actually asking the team to do? How do we take more responsibility higher up in the company? for what we're building instead of just pushing it all the way down to the teams and saying, you guys do discovery, you all go figure it out. Okay.
0: So I think what might be interesting to get into, um, if you're cool with this, the examples in the book are all great, but I've already read them and it makes it harder for me to ask really great questions about them because I feel like I've read them and understand them. So do you have any examples of like recent work at Basecamp? that we could work through from like the shaping process where I'm not going to understand f- the trade-offs and I'm going to be able to ask questions that are going to be more.
1: Um, I can tell you the story of a failed project okay. that we canceled because it wasn't shaped well. Okay. Okay. Um So I, uh, there was a project where um, we had done, I had done quite a bit of, and, and by the way, we can talk about the demand side if you want it's not like that doesn't belong in here at all it's just that the the subject of shaping is mostly about the supply yeah side and I, th- I, think that's, I think that's an interesting
0: insight honestly because i think like we could talk about the other stuff forever which is like from a design sort of perspective how do we understand what problem the customer really has and make sure we're coming yep. up with something that actually but mm-hmm. what you said about how no matter how much clarity you have on that and how clear you can explain that to the people actually doing the work Teams are still failing to deliver. So yeah, we well, have this is to where get, you get have into to solve the, that somehow, no exactly, matter what, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, you can have the best concept in the world, but then if your if your development process is a Jira paper shredder where somebody takes the whole project, shreds it up into little bits, and then assigns those bits as tasks to programmers, like it's never it's not gonna work out well, you know. So um anyway, so yeah, so I'll give you one example of a of uh, this is the kind of thing that happens. So what can happen is um Sometimes uh, we have a very calm, sort of clear betting table where um, everyone has time to think and we have well-prepared projects and it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do in the next cycle. And it gets a lot of consideration, right? In the real world, you can't always have that focused, clear, thoughtful set- betting table. Sometimes what happens is both of the partners were were away, or, or or totally overwhelmed with other tasks, or their head was somewhere else because they were just too busy. And all of a sudden, before you know it, oh man, here's the next cycle. What are we going to do? Sure, yeah, <laughs> right. And it can it can it can easily happen. And we still do it from time to time. That it's like, well, you know what? Let's just do that one thing that we talked about the other day, right? Without shaping it, without really getting, without digging deep and doing the deep work of thinking through what we're about to bet on. And so one time that that happened was uh, we were batting around some ideas to make it easier for you to capture your own private tasks in Basecamp, like outside of a project. And we had a fairly sophisticated answer to this. Um, When we brought it to the team, uh, there were some questions that came up. And just because of the atmosphere of what else was happening at the company at the time, there wasn't the patience to really dig in and answer the questions and get clear about what this thing was. And instead, it was like, you know what? We had this other very, this random idea that came up a few days ago called the scratch pad. And the idea was, let's just put like a blank text field in a private location in Basecamp that's very quick to pull up. And if you want to just sort of type tasks in there just as plain text, but it was sort of be this reliable place to dump stuff that you need to do for yourself. And the the um, I wasn't part of the conversation but from what I understand this this idea came back in and there was sort of an 11th hour decision to to change the bet. Instead of building out this whole custom private personal to do thing. Let's just do this scratch pad thing instead. And then we can just sort of knock this out and it'll be a quick thing and then we can move on. Right. So this, this sort of six week project got scaled down to a two week. What was supposed to be, we have, we have what are called small batch projects. And that's where you have, we, we, we have a team together for six weeks, but we don't give them one project. We give them like three projects maybe to do within the six weeks and they figure out how to get it all done. So it's, the time isn't, isn't quantized inside of that six weeks. It's not like you do this for two weeks and then ship and then do this. It's just an understanding, like the team should get all these things done in this period of time and they self-manage. So this thing had a had a more or less two-week appetite on it. The, the team takes it on. There was no shaping. There was no um, I, what we sometimes call de-risking, which is like asking really tough, critical questions about the project of what are the things that could go wrong, you know? They just, they just at kickoff, decided to take on this project. And then what happened was, because we hadn't shaped it, a lot of questions came up. Should you be able to drag a file attachment into this thing? Like, what if I just have a screenshot that I want to be able to drag in? Should I be able to format? Should I be able to do bold and italic and bullet lists and stuff in here? And what happened was, there was a path to that. Uh, So then, the the idea was okay. Well, instead of this being a plain text field, let's make this like a. We we have a thing called Tricks, which is like our WYSIWYG editor. Let's make it a Tricks field. Well, if it's a Tricks field, then the the difference between the edit state and the show state becomes bigger, right? Because if you have a link in the in the now you can have a link in there, and if you're in the edit state and you click the link, it doesn't go anywhere. But you're in the show state, you click the link, and it would take you somewhere. So now do we have separate edit state and different show state? And what do we do about file attachments? And should we preview images when you drag it in there, blah, blah, blah. So what happened is the scope starts to balloon, right? And, yeah. and, 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 it and not even
0: so much the scope also just like, just seems like questions and yes. decisions that have to be made.
1: All of these, all, it's, the, the project starts to feel like it's full of question marks, yeah. right? And here's the thing, all of those were good questions. And they were all good ideas and everything that the team this is where we we use the lens of shaping to look at performance the performance of the team was totally reasonable considering the fact that they were given an open-ended idea which was like just make a scratch pad right all of the questions they raised and everything they thought of is totally understandable what didn't happen was we didn't put up guardrails from a higher level in the company to say you know what Attachments don't matter. Styling doesn't matter. Links don't matter. This is, this is just a plain text place where there's no difference between the show state and the edit state that's constantly autosaving, saving so that you can quickly capture something. Mm-hmm. So do you feel the difference, uh, how, how, how much more shaped that idea is? When you have the guardrails on that idea and you're like, it's only this, and this is what matters about it, and we're not doing that, or we're not doing that, or we're not doing that, When you take that idea and you put that inside of the appetite, you put that inside of the, let's say, two-week time box, there's still variable scope. There's still lots of little decisions to make about how to present it, how to show the autosave indicator. You know, like there's, there's a whole lot of open questions still, but it's a different type of open question. It's an open question of how to fill in the detail. It's not an open question about where the edges are.
0: So to play like devil's advocate for a second, I think the, th- the part of that that I'm like the most skeptical about as a developer myself is I feel like I have a low confidence that it's even possible to really successfully always identify what some of the hairy parts of anything are going to be until like you're actually doing the work. You know what I mean? In my experience, anyways, no matter how much I've tried to plan something, there's always like inevitably like something that you I never could have predicted until I actually do the work that's like, wow, this is gonna take six times longer than I thought now. Mm -hmm. Is that just something that just doesn't seem to happen at Basecamp? Or is it something that you feel like you've over time gotten better at being able to sort of identify where where some of these risks are, What, what happens when that does happen on a project, if it does happen.
1: Yep. Yeah. So those are great questions. First thing is there's no ultimate security. There will always be things that, that, that you can't see that can surprise you and that can blow up a project. We cannot give a 100% guarantee that that's never going to happen. However, the, the, the reason that, that, that happens, that it takes six times longer than you thought is because of unseen interdependencies. It's always because of interdependency that that happens. I pulled on this string and I kept pulling and it kept leading me to different places, you know, and like, oh, like this is connected to that. I can't change this without changing that. And if I change this, I have to change that. And that's how, that's how it takes so long is because so many parts are all becoming involved because they were all interdependent. The thing that we're looking at in the shaping phase. So first there's a shaping phase of just putting the clay on the table. Here's what we think we want to do, Right. But then there's a step in shaping. In the book, it's a chapter called Risks and Rabbit Holes. What we look at when we're looking for rabbit holes is we're looking for interdependencies. So what we do is we look at the shaped concept and we get a technical, a technical expert who's quite senior, looks at the shaped work, and they actually open the hood a little bit and they look at the, the touch points that we expect to be there or the API points that we expect to be there, and they pull on the string a little bit and see how far it leads, you know? If you have a a concept that you've shaped, and all of the parts are independent or orthogonal from each other, then your risk profile is going to be thin-tailed. It's going to be something where it's not going to be six times, ten times as long as you think. You might be off by a bit, but it's not going to blow up in your face. If, if you have problems in the design or in the code where like this depends on that and also depends on that and there's a sort of circularity there, that's, that's when you're going to get into trouble. So what we're doing is we're looking for those types of things and we're doing it with technical expertise. We're asking the hard questions and we're looking actually at the existing system. And then we're saying, what do we need to cut from here or what decisions do we need to make so that we can orthogonalize this shaped work? So that we yeah. can make all the little pieces that make it hold together independent enough from each other that they're bounded.
0: Makes sense. So how does that fit into this the schedule, I guess? Like um the person, like the technical experts say, like the developer at the company that's gonna help you sort of find out where the hairy bits are, are they involved in like a big batch project already and you have to sort of take them out of that to do this? Does it happen like in between batches? Is there um people at the company who don't actually work in that sort of st- like work on like the batch work and are just kind of available for this sort of thing or who's usually doing this and where does it fit into the schedule?
1: Yeah. So the first thing to, to, to to make it more understandable is that we think of this more in terms of a checkpoint for, is this safe to bet on or not? So this just needs to happen at some point before we consider it bettable. Right, so that means that um it could be that there's a there's a piece of work that's shaping to, that we're shaping together, and we run it by David to to get his take on it david David might be uh might be waist deep in in some real programming project that he's doing for something new that we're doing. He might be even involved in in work inside of a cycle with a team. Um, but he might not, right? Um, Jeff, who is one of our most senior people uh, on the programming side, m- uh, is is usually hands on, involved inside the cycles. Um, but uh, he might, depending on what's going on in the inside the the ebb and flow of the natural rhythm of what's happening in that particular cycle, he might become available for a day. So, a, a huge part of Here's, this is a little bit hard to explain, but I think it's worth trying. <laughs> um, there's two types of work. There's the type of work where you you can't predict when it's going to get done. And you're just being opportunistic. You're following your nose. You're hoping that you strike oil with an idea, right? Shaping is like that. So you don't know where it's going to go. You don't have a clear expectation about it, but you think that there's something there. So you're trying to, you're trying to see if you can get it to all hang together, right? It's very, it's open-ended, it's open field, it's exploratory, it's opportunistic. And in in Taleb's technical language, like you call it like convex. And the other type of work is the work that happens inside of a cycle where you know what it is, you know that it's going to get done, you're making a promise and it's going to happen within this period of time, right? The mindset of the shaping work is like, I'm in a, i am in I think I've got something here. I'm going to try and see if I can get David's attention on this when he has a free moment, you know? Or I'm going to see if I can get Jeff to answer to this. So it's not on a schedule, but there's a feeling of like, uh, there's an opportunity here. I think I've got a chance to get this together. Let me see if I can get their eyes on it, right? The other piece of this is um, we do have this two-week cooldown period uh, in between cycles. The two-week cooldown is a period where Nobody who uh, has a responsibility to do anything uh, that's thats coming from anybody else. So it should still be work-related, but you could fix bugs that have been bothering you personally. You could start playing with a new library that you've wanted to learn about, whatever it could be, right? And that two weeks creates a kind of open space where people can interrupt each other. People can have meetings with each other if they need to. And it's not its not getting in the way of work shipping, Right. It's like this, like mixing time, you know, where anything can happen, and so um, and we're not we're not holding the betting table on day one of those two weeks. So what can happen is we could actually use the first week of that cool down to get technical pushback on something that we think is shaped, right, or to workshop it or get to a point where it's solvable, and uh, so that's that's a way also to get that technical input without pulling anybody off of cycle work.
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Tuple. So years ago, I used to use this app all the time called Screen Hero, that let me quickly hop on a screen sharing call with a friend or coworker whenever we needed to pair program on a new feature or fix a bug, stuff like that. Eventually, Screen Hero got acquired by Slack, who promptly shut it down and released their own way worse version built into the bloated resource swallowing black hole that is their Electron app. So after this happened, I spent literally years Suffering through either web based alternatives that had terrible performance or enterprisey meetings slash webinars slash conferencing software that filled my screen with all these unhideable, annoying pop ups and toolbars and then. Uh, my friend Ben Ornstein and his buddies Joel and Spencer released Tuple, the absolute best pair programming app I have ever used. Here's why I love it. Number one, it's written in C++, so it is fast as hell with no electron overhead. Number two, it stays out of the way. There are no annoying pinned windows covering up all the tools I'm actually trying to use. Like my text editor, uh, Tuple itself is completely invisible except for a little icon in the menu bar. Uh, number three, I can start a call with someone in my contacts list in literally one click so I don't have to create a meeting and then send around a URL or send invitations via email or any of that slow annoying crap. Number four the remote control experience is actually even better than Screen Hero so they've done all sorts of clever optimizations in Tuple to make interacting with your Paris computer feel incredibly fast and responsive like being really clever about detecting the mouse position on your computer instead of on the Paris computer so there's no visible lag. All sorts of little details. Like that, that you'll notice that make the experience feel really great. Uh, number five, it's actually built for pair programming, not for webinars or meetings or conferencing, whatever the hell that is. It's loaded with all sorts of little details that make the pairing experience really great. Like quickly drawing something on the other person's screen with a little pen tool. Like maybe you want to draw a circle around something to get someone's attention in a certain place, or just click on something and have a little halo show up so you can point out a specific part of the screen, or even being able to copy a. URL on your own computer and have that automatically appear in the clipboard for the person that you're pairing with so they can quickly jump to some documentation that you guys want to read together. So I was literally the very first customer that paid for Tuple when it was released in 2018, and I have been a happy customer ever since. If your team does any pair programming at all, and you should because it's by far the most productive way I've ever found to build software, uh, you should 100% visit tuple.app and sign up for a free two-week trial to test it out I promise you won't be disappointed. Thanks again to Tuple for sponsoring Full Stack Radio this week. Back to the show. So I think probably the next big topic to get into that I think is going to be one of the more interesting ones for people listening is um, what does it look like to actually do the work once it's been once you've decided which pitches that you're going to commit to for this cycle um so i think maybe like the best place to start and this is still kind of related to the shaping stuff i guess is what artifacts does a team receive that they're expected to be able to succeed with at like the beginning of the pitch and how much does it vary from project to project i guess so do you mind Mm -hmm. maybe giving me a few examples of like what a team had to start from just so people listening, I think can get an idea of like how spec out things are. Like sometimes we have a mock-up, sometimes it's just written, or you know what I mean? Is it does it always include both elements? How consistent is it? Um anything that you yeah. can share there to sort of paint the picture for like what people have as their starting point on a team to actually deliver the feature.
1: So uh this this uh, this comes back to to shaping the work at the right level of abstraction. If we if we if we just say in words, go build the scratch pad, then that's too abstract. And if we give wireframes and, and hi-fi mockups and stuff like that, that's much too concrete. Cause then we're already doing the work for them of we're sort of fixing too much of the solution up front, right? So we use what we call fat marker sketches as the main tool, and also sometimes breadboarding, as the main tool to communicate the idea. At the level where it's concrete enough that everyone can see exactly what's in and what's out and how it works, but there still isn't uh, there isn't like a hi-fi design that anybody's just going to go implement exactly that. So that's the first thing. Uh, the The ingredients of a of a of a write up. Uh, so we we call it a pitch when we're writing up what we've shaped to bring it to the betting table, right? Because you're pitching it to to, to get bet on, and then. Organically, people end up calling the same type of write-up the shaping doc after the project starts, because it's not a pitch anymore. Because it's like it's it's happening. You know what I sure, mean? Sure, it's
0: like been moved um, from one column to the next, even though it's the same content. It's just like in a totally. Totally different phase of the process. Totally. Yeah.
1: And basically, what what the shaping doc should give you is it should spell out the problem so you understand the motivation of why we're doing this. It should spell out the appetite so you can understand why certain t- chunks of the scope are missing. You know, if, if, if we say this is, a, this is a calendar and we're going to build in six months, then you can understand why everything's in there. If you say this is a calendar and we're only building it in six weeks and then a bunch of stuff is missing, you can understand why, because how else would we get it done in six weeks? You know, so this comes back. This is the whole like, um, what's better, a steak or a hot dog, right? Like a steak, a steak is objectively somehow a better meal, maybe. But if you only have five minutes, a steak is not the right solution. Right. So but when you need to know the time constraint in order to appropriately value the solution that's being given. Right. And to understand the trade-offs. So we've got the problem. We've got the appetite clearly stated. Then we've got the tent poles of the solution. And that's where we're looking at uh, fat marker sketches. And we're, we're seeing a walkthrough of you'll go from here to here and then we'll have an affordance for that and that kind of a thing. The fourth, and then the 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 last thing basically that we need is to call out any rabbit holes or things that we're not doing. So, uh, so for example, when we shaped the idea for the to do groups in Basecamp, there was a whole rabbit hole related to how to deal with completed items, and there were at least three different solutions for handling completed items. All of them involved ripping up a lot of existing behavior and existing code, and it was a it was just a really gnarly part of the app. And we, we made a decision at the shaping step to go with a not awesome solution. You know, we, we, uh, we found a way to, to put all the completed items at the bottom of a list and just append the group name at the end instead of sort of gathering the grouped completed items together. And there were a lot of flaws with that, but it allowed us to orthogonalize the work more. It allowed us to say, we know with confidence that we're not going to have to change a whole bunch of other stuff that are sort of ripple effects from this if we make this call. And when we stated that up front, that we know this isn't ideal, we know it's not the best possible way to handle completed items, but we're making the call because it 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 clips it cuts away all of this risk. It cuts away all these unknowns because it simplifies the work and makes it more independent and orthogonal. That's why we're doing it. That's the kind of thing that you're going to see in the shaping doc.
0: So when a team is given this and you've identified like a risk like that or a rabbit hole, something where you've decided like basically, listen, when we were thinking through this problem, it occurred to us that this part could be really hard and it's going to occur to you that this is going to be really hard if we don't bring it up to you in advance. So Uh we're just letting you know, like, it's totally fine to just do this very, very simple thing. Don't waste yes. any brain energy on this at all. Yes. Um, and, and now are you saying don't waste any energy on it, period? Or are you saying deprioritize this until everything else is done? And if that happens at three and a half weeks into the cycle, well, now maybe we can spend some time thinking about, can we improve this?
1: Well, in the case of a real rabbit hole, we're saying it's just out. Okay. There's other things that we might identify as nice to haves that we're going to call out and say... Maybe we want to color code the groups. Yeah. This is not important. It would be nice, but it's not important. So don't sequence it up front in the six okay. weeks. And if it doesn't happen, that's fine. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, how much room, I guess, is there in terms of what is defined and what is left to the team? Because I know you talk a lot about like at Basecamp, teams are very autonomous in the sense that you've given them this work, it's been shaped. The idea is, um, you're not going to talk to them and thus they want to talk to you for the next six weeks, basically, sort of thing. You're not going to interrupt them. But for a team to like succeed and be autonomous, obviously they need like some control. They need like some ability to change things and make decisions about things. So it's obviously not like black and white, right? It, it can't, it's not just like, okay, we define every single task, like you said, through like the sort of JIRA paper shredder approach versus yep. like we give you some very vague thing and you do all the strategy work to even figure out what the, the feature should yep. be. But there has to be some level of um, the team deciding, you know what, we're going to have to like punt on this part because um, it was harder than it sounded and it's not as important as this other stuff. So I guess like how much like wiggle room do, does the team actually have in terms of like the minimum acceptable solution for the end of a cycle versus sort of like what would be an an impressively deep solution for the amount of time given yeah. to them, you know?
1: Well, so when we're, when we're making the bet, we have to make a value judgment of this is worth the six weeks because of what we're going to get out at the end. So there has to be a sense of does it do what it was supposed to do or not and that needs to be clear from the shaping doc
0: so i think the thing that i'm wondering with that is that almost makes it sound like it's there's it's not a flexible scope project in some oh, ways man. you know what i mean it,
1: no it is so flexible because here's the thing macro and micro are completely different universes okay completely different worlds man it is we can constantly constantly underappreciate how much hard work and problem solving and expertise go into getting it all to actually work and make sense. So it's one thing to, to to draw something with a fat Sharpie marker and say like, we think that this concept makes sense and hangs together. It's a whole other thing to, to actually code it in such a way that everything is factored in a way that makes sense that all the edge cases are actually covered that, um, to actually make it work, making it work is hard. It's really, really, really hard. And as you start to get in, there's tons and tons of things that you're going to discover that you could do that are going to look like good ideas. So can you um, give me
0: an example of that?
1: Oh man. Um, I uh, well, even even if we we just go back to the scratch pad example, I mean, um, supporting. Of course, you should be able to have a link inside of a inside of your scratch pad, right? Of course, you should be able to have a link, right? If if nobody told you up front no links, then then of course you should do that, and and m- looking critically at those ideas that crop up, you know, or like we should we should refactor this part of the screen over here because. It's always been a little bit bothering us. And if we don't fix it now, it's never going to get better. You know what I mean? Like there's all these things that you bump into along the way of doing the work that you realize like would be an improvement, would be better, blah, 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 right? That's where the variable scope, you need, you need to scope hammer because scope is always growing right under your nose. Like in, in the book, there's a section that says scope grows like grass, Because we don't know, not only do we not know exactly how the thing is going to wire together when it comes to the particulars of making it work, and we don't know how the pieces of UI are going to sit together and actually if they're going to be clear or or if it's going to make sense as a whole when you're actually looking at it, it's really there. We also can't see all the little edge cases and all the new ideas that are going to come up and all the little improvements that we're going to think of. And so what the team needs to do is they, they have to constantly fight against that. I mean, it's not easy. They have to constantly fight against improving stuff that they bump into that's rough, adding little support for edge cases that nobody could have anticipated. You know, there's there's stuff like that happening all the time. And so the very variable scope is really about saying no to all the stuff that you're discovering as you go along the way.
0: Sure. So in my head, the way that I'm kind of understanding what you're saying, I'm trying to put together an example I'm, th- I'm thinking of it as sort of like the team is giving this like fat marker sketch um at some point someone puts someone in the team is thinking through how this is actually going to look in the app in like a high fidelity way as you're sort of building it out but there's like you, you you sort of have the opportunity to choose between like multiple solutions for these sort of like micro problems within like the bigger problem and that's yes. where the team is sort of Given the autonomy, so it's like there are so many degrees. Like throw up a modal, or should it be like totally. an inline editing thing, or should there totally. be a tooltip here? And should yes. links work in tooltips and weird? And those are all going like to have that. those
1: are all going to have very different costs because you might have a uh, uh, you might have something that's sort of modular that you've already componentized for some sort of a modal, and you might not have something for uh, like a popover. Uh, thing that we, when you with that, that that's yeah. attached to the button let's say mm-hmm. and what could happen is the team could easily say this this um we're going to do a popover that uh, that is attached to the button when you click it like a sort of menu that pops up right and we don't have a component for that so but we we're sure that that's the very 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 best ultimate best solution so we're going to build that well if you don't have time for that then you need to make a trade-off and say, well, the modal's not quite as good, but we would get we'd be able to get it working in three days. Yeah. You know? And those types of forks in the road are constantly appearing in front of you down at the micro level. So our I mean I don't even like, like calling it micro. It's just that we have to distinguish between these sure, two scales. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So um, I'm trying to think of the best way to sort of like phrase this, but I'm thinking like in my head, the way that I would want to solve something like this, right, is my goal would be to how can I, like, build something that I could put into production that would solve the problem outlined in, like, the shaping doc in, like, the fewest number of minutes possible, basically, mm-hmm. even if it's, like, not ideal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the, like, mm-hmm. like you said, with, like, okay, well, we can solve this with a modal even though it kind of feels like it's only 50% as good as this, like, more custom thing. Yep. But if I solve it with a modal i can say that, like some version of that is done now and there's like a better version of it that i can do but i don't want to think about the better version of that until like the better than zero version of like the whole surface area is done yes um if that makes sense is that like how everyone is thinking about building things like our teams sort of building things in this sort of iterative fashion where the goal is to sort of get to shippable faster like i guess in my head i'm comparing it to you know that like that um that image that's been going around the internet forever of like the, the MVP where it's like, don't build a car by like first like building the tire and then building the frame and then building the seats and then having a car. It's like mm. build the scooter a then build the di- bike. It's a little, it's a little the-
1: different than that because if you're working inside of a six week time box, you don't have time to build the build the build the tricycle and then throw the tricycle away and then build yeah. the bicycle. And that's and then what throw I'm, the bicycle that's like kind of away, what I'm wondering. Yeah,
0: like you don't want to throw things away, but no, no. if you if you're not so building stuff that you can throw away there's I worry that there's this chance that you never get to the finished thing. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so well well we we're doing the shaping first of all to protect them from that. Mm-hmm. So we we are giving a, a, a an amount of work that's smaller than the amount of time that they have and we're reserving capacity for the unknowns okay right nonetheless they are still going to have a million different ideas for how to do everything yeah right the the main issue is not we are overvaluing iteration as an industry okay and we need to start controversial opinion
0: incoming in addition to it (laughs) yeah
1: in addition to iteration we need to value trade-offs you have to make calls and say no and commit to something and move on and do the next thing. And yeah. not just say, I get to do a, a maybe not great enough version because I get to come back later. You don't get to come back later forever. And this is the problem with iteration in the industry today. Everybody says, well, I don't have to do a perfect job because I'll just I'll just make it better later. Well, mm-hmm. if you if you can always make anything better later, of course nothing is shipping. Cause it's never done. Right? So when you have that time wall at the end of the six weeks and the circuit breaker there at the end of that pushing back on you, and you have a very well-thought-out, clearly-shaped concept, what you want to do is you want to build a piece of that that's orthogonal to the rest that you can get working and walk away from and consider done all the way through the life of the project.
0: Okay. Can you give an example?
1: um, So I... Yeah. So, um, so I recently was working on a system to build, um, uh, how do I say this? Um, uh, I had a, an event a system for posting events. Okay. Um, from different branches of an organization and they all get pooled together into one place. And, uh, originally we were using, um, uh, the city as the location to sort of name the location of the branch. It was like the Chicago branch versus the Madison branch versus the Minneapolis branch, right? Um, but what happened was um, the, the organization started to have a couple locations that were in really remote places that became known by their place name instead of their city name. So for example, there's a place called the, the Western Retreat Center that's way out in the middle of nowhere in California. And nobody knows the name of the nearest town you know? Yeah. So how do we, how do we sort of summarize the location of that event in this event table? Right. That was the problem. Okay. In order to do this, there was a, my, there was a, there was a concept to add a new sort of piece of data to every event, which internally was called a location summary, which was sort of like, what's the shorthand name for this place? So instead of writing Western retreat center alongside Chicago, you know Santa Fe, Denver, blah blah blah. You could just write um, something that everybody understood as as like well. You could write Western Retreat Center, and it would it would break the mold of like we no longer are pulling the city as like this value. Um, or you could write WRC or, or some conventionalized name for this for this location. There were a variety of different problems to doing this. There was a, a migration issue that we needed to populate the value based on city for all the old existing events. We needed to solve a, a, a display issue of um, does this always, is it always going to look good on the event listing when some of the values for this column are formatted differently, depending on th- the content? We needed to have a new UI on the form where you actually um, uh, detail what an event is. So you're like, this is the name of the event, this is the date, this is the location. You needed to somehow fill out this new field, right? Um, so for example... Um, one problem of this project is, can you clearly um, afford this field on the on the interface and label it in such a way uh, that it can get pre-populated in the cases where the city is appropriate so they don't even have to think about it, and they can enter it when when it's more appropriate to custom specify it, and they're actually going to know what to write there, right? So there's a copywriting issue, there's a UI issue, there's some technical questions there, that was a scope that, that I identified as um, provide location summary was the name of this scope. That scope was independent of solving the migration issue. It was independent of how we reveal this on the event listing. It was local to the event form. If I could solve that problem and walk away from it, I've shrunk the universe of things that I have to figure out for this project. I wanna solve that piece of that project and I don't want to have to go back there again to iterate on it. Like, I just want to solve it, right? But I need to draw a line of like, I'm working on this, and I'm not thinking about the event listing over there right now, or I'm not thinking about all these other aspects of the problem, right? So I need to draw a boundary to make it indip- It's just like when you're programming, you don't program everything in one giant class. Yeah. You separate responsibilities of different pieces of functionality inside of different methods or classes or namespaces or whatever, right? So it's actually a factoring problem, not an iteration problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's what you're trying to say, basically, like another approach that you could have taken to this that you think would have resulted in less success is like, well, maybe I'll figure out like the design for this piece and think about the copywriting, um, but not actually do any of the work that makes it so that when I enter the value here, it actually gets saved to the database. And also, while I'm doing that design, I'm going to update the design over in this event listing over here because... You know, they both are CSS problems or something rather than yeah. like f- actually like being able to take like a chunk of like the problem solving and just like put it away and be like that is completely finished and working. Even if it doesn't sp- sp- even if it's not like building the whole feature, it's not like you can ship this without shipping the other stuff because like the feature needs to ship together at least this like slice of it. um, that's can the keyword. Totally slice. cut out of your head. Yeah,
1: that's the keyword. It's a vertical slice instead of a piece of some horizontal thing. So where 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 is a piece of this thing where we can get the programming part done, the interface part done, put them together so I can click on something and I can say, "Aha!" Uh-huh, yeah, this this chunk of the problem is out of our minds now.
0: Yeah. One other thing I wanted to talk about related to this, like well just another element of this whole how teams are actually working thing um i think the way like a lot of teams work is they have designers who put together these high fidelity designs give them over to the programmers who then build it out right and from like reading shape up and following some of the stuff that you guys talk about at base game in general it feels like a lot of time you guys are doing like the opposite um where like you're almost like building a prototype of like the the code side of things mm. with no real thought put into the high fidelity design. Mm. Um, just kind of almost using like default browser styles in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, here's the times new Roman version of this feature basically. Yeah. And then, um, once you have all the buttons and the radio buttons and the checkboxes and everything kind of there and works and you can sort of see like, yes, this lets me do this interaction that I want to be able to do in a way that makes sense. Then we go back and figure out how can we, make this kind of like put a fresh coat of paint on this sort of thing yep um is that like how you guys always work um and in that sort of situation like i guess i'm what i'm curious about is like the sequencing of the work like when designers are doing design and when programmers are doing programming and when they're like collaborating together versus when they're like handing things off just to sort of like paint the picture of what it looks like for like this team of a designer and two programmers to actually be tackling a problem
1: yeah totally so i find a useful way to think about this is just to look at the interdependencies look at who depends on who for what when the programmer should not have to wait on anybody because the color blue is the wrong color blue yep right but the programmer needs to know what are the endpoints in the view for the controller actions, right? So what the programmer needs is affordances that actually wire back to... in What does the, the code actually wire into? The code doesn't wire into blue. The code doesn't wire into a font choice. It doesn't wire into it's on the left instead of it's on the right. If you look at it as a network or as a topology... Like the code connects to a button and the button, when you click on it, calls this function and then something happens, right? So so what the programmer needs is the button. And it doesn't matter exactly where the button is and it doesn't matter exactly where the button looks or how the button looks, right? So the first thing... So so first of all, um, if we really start from zero, both the programmer and the designer have seen the, have the rough concept in their mind uh, based on the shaping. So that means that the programmer is not starting from zero. They already can start thinking about modeling issues or schema changes or whatever. They can start dealing with those deeper problems from the very, very beginning because the model is kind of implicit in the shaped work to a certain degree.
0: Okay. So, so would you say like more often than not, programmers are able to like start programming from the shaping doc without having to I would collaborate say, no, with here, the
1: designers? Here, here, Well, now we're coming into another distinction, and I'm sorry that it always gets more complicated, but, you know, like real work is nuanced. Yeah, totally. (laughs) um, Sometimes we have this kind of funny idea. I think it comes from ticket world. You get a ticket, you start programming, right? There's a ton of work that we're all doing all the time that is not programming, which is a kind of um, getting oriented work. Is that where I think it is? If I make this schema change, like, is it going to screw up that other thing? Like there's a whole phase of, of, of just figuring out where are things and what do I think I'm going to do? And if I do that, is it going to connect together or not? Right. So, and this is, this is getting much too discounted, um, in, in most companies today. It's like, if you're not programming, what are you doing? It's like, well, yeah. no, like I, I need to just figure out like how this, how this, how this already works before I can even put something new into it. So what's going to happen is at kickoff, the shaping doc is going to give a lot of direction and guidance to where the problems are and and where to start. But then the programmers on their side are already going to have a lot of questions appearing in their mind about how am I going to model this? How is it going to fit into what's already there? They're not necessarily going to start building, pouring the concrete that everything else stands on, but they're going to start problem-solving. And they're going to be eliminating options, you know, as they're doing that, they should have, we really should um, lead with design all the time because um, it, it, the design does matter f- with, from the perspective of the affordances in the design, not the style, right? So, but the, the thing is that figuring out what the right affordances are doesn't take as long as nudging things one pixel here and one pixel there and stroking your chin and trying to figure out if it looks right or not you know so the designers can while the programmers are getting oriented and starting to spike out ideas for what they think the right approach might be to the model the 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 programmers can uh for example get uh, they can they can wire a route together that will give the the designers a place to put a template Yep. so that they can actually navigate to it that's something that the programmers can do up front right now the designer has a route and they maybe have like a, an empty controller action and the designer then can stub in a template that has the right affordances in it but with a with a Tbd visual design
0: sure yeah so I think this is an important distinct or point to touch on which um I didn't make any assumptions on but it's becoming clear designers at basecamp are Writing like at least the first draft of like the templates usually.
1: The designers at Basecamp are responsible for the HTML and CSS and 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 some degree of JavaScript.
0: Okay, so and, period, um, they're responsible for it. So a programmer is never going to be in a situation where they're the ones opening up a view and deciding. Well, I know based on this um, fat marker sketch that we're going to need like a button and like a checkbox here. Exactly. Like they're That's never the, the ones putting that in there. The designer is exactly
1: it. yes if it's the the designer is responsible for the front end all the way down to the template okay and uh there may be things in the template where um it's more like the back end is seeping is seeping up into the template you know like you might need some presentation logic or you might need a helper method or whatever there's places where you need to integrate programming into the view that's a little bit more of a special case
0: programming expertise would help Make the solution yeah. feel more maintainable, or something. Or you
1: might need some some more complicated, rich interaction. Like, how do I swap out this piece of the UI with that other piece when this happens? Well, there has to be. Sometimes you need to partition the template into in a certain way because you understand how the parts are going to get substituted by you know by the AJAX call or whatever. So mm-hmm. there, there's places where there needs to be more interaction between the programmer and the designer. But actually, um, when the designers are already in the code, and especially if you're using Um, uh, uh, something more like Rails or Laravel or something instead of something like React, you are empowering the designers to also get more and more familiar with what the programmers are doing, um, sort of one step below the template, you know? And what happens is through that working relationship, the designers start to anticipate, "Uh aha, this is going to get substituted by this by this backend piece of functionality, it should be a separate div, and it should the CSS should respect the fact that this block might not be there. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing, or the way that, for example, the designers are going to think about iterating over collections. You know, they're going to know like this instance variable is a collection, and I know how to iterate over it or call it out to a partial that loops multiple times, and so I'm going to take that into account, or even like stub that collection in the controller, you know, so that I can play with multiple iterations of the, of the yeah. thing. So maybe you, know, you have uh, just like
0: a hard-coded list in the controller. Totally. And eventually, like, that's going to get pulled out from under you and all of a sudden it's coming from the database. But like, yes. that's not really your problem at that point. You, you just care that the instance variable is there in the controller. Right,
1: exactly. So the, so the designer gets the, 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 the basic pieces into place and then the programmer can do the wiring work now because they have all the affordances and endpoints they need. And then in parallel to that, now the designer can fuss with 10 different ways to move the button around or, or or retyping rewriting the copy 10 different times to figure out what's the right way to explain it, you know? And this is where this is this is where we look at it through the lens of interdependence, right? If the copy doesn't de- if the programmer doesn't need the copy, then don't give the copy to the programmer yet. Just give the programmer what they need so they can get started and then you've got your own local version of the app running and you can keep iterating on copy and color and arrangement. Uh, you know as you go and in parallel
0: yeah that makes sense awesome i think that's probably like all the questions that i have specifically about like the the building phase i know there's we've probably only touched on 10 percent of all the different parts of it but i want to be respectful of your time and i did have one other kind of unrelated question so um something i'm curious about that i think a lot of people listening are probably in this situation is have you talked to many teams that are applying like this sort of approach Um, that do client work as opposed to like internal product Mm -hmm. work. And are there any pieces of advice that you would give to teams who want to try and work in this way because like they see it and they think, wow, like this seems like such a better way to work, but I'm not sure how to pull this off in a client world where expectations are a little bit different in terms of time and budget and scope and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Um, So we, I have talked to some people who do this with client work. Uh, the majority have been, have been people who don't, uh, mm-hmm. but it, there is something there with client work. And, and this actually traces back to what I saw Jason doing in the early days when we were doing client work. Clients sometimes want the impossible. Sure, They want us to, to be able to tell them exactly what we're going to do and how long it's going to take and what it's going to cost. And they want it to all be done when we say it's going to be done. Like that's the sort of fantasy we we know better because we understand how much uncertainty there is in the real work i think it's it's our responsibility and and opportunity to to in an upright and honest way look our clients in the eyes and say look this is the reality none of us have a crystal ball we don't know how this is going to shake out no no if you've done this exact project 10 times before you do know and this isn't even a question right if you're doing factory-type work where you just cook out the same thing over and over again, then these questions don't apply. If there's novelty in the work of any kind, right, or if um, if they aren't, if if there's any question of whether they what you build is what they're going to want, you know, then the most honest thing to do is say, look, rather than making a commitment to you about what's going to happen at the end of six months, let's talk about what we think we can reasonably accomplish within six weeks. And let's talk about the type of wiggle room in the solution that we're going to need because there's no getting around the unknowns. And then what happens is you're having a more honest conversation where you're not promising things you can't deliver. They're actually reducing their risk if they make a six-week commitment with you instead of a six-month commitment. And it's like, hey, let's let's take it six weeks at a time. It's better for everybody because you're not all making promises to things that you can't see and, and can't predict. So I think there's a... There's a lot of value there, and it maps it maps very very well. Let's let's shape what we think we want. Let's look at what we've shaped before we make a commitment. Let's say we can't predict the final form, but this is our best um, understanding of what we think we can do. And let's make the time commitment long enough to finish it, but short enough that nobody feels like it's the end of the world if 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 it's not 100 percent what we expected.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on uh, and do the podcast with me, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton. It's always great being able to to chat with you about this stuff. Where is the best place for people to sort of keep up with the new work that you're doing and ideas that you're exploring, and to learn more about the Shape Up process and check out the book?
1: So the best place to learn about Shape Up is just to go check out the book online at Basecamp.com/shapeup. You can read it directly on the web there or download it as a PDF. And uh, if you're interested in more just sort of what's new and and what's happening around ShapeUp or latest thoughts on it, my Twitter is the best best place for that. I'm rjs on Twitter.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ryan Singer about how Basecamp builds software. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 131. Thanks to Tupul for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.